Well, welcome, Rocky Peak. Good morning. Welcome to our 12 o'clock service. I'm expecting a lot from you today, right? You got an extra hour of sleep, you know. You can't believe how much it helped at nine o'clock. They, uh, they were halfway to you in terms of energy. So, uh, no, it's so good to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and just a special welcome. Uh, we are going to go into a time of teaching, but I just want to highlight real quickly, uh, you know, uh, Kellyanne was talking about this uh, encounter, and uh, I, I'm really excited about this. You know, um, for those of you who were our January encounter, uh, I think we all walked away saying, that was the most incredible encounter ever. And then we had our encounter in May. And the place was like standing room only, and it was like, I don't know what's going on, but that was our most amazing encounter ever. And uh, it just seems like God's on the move. Something's happening, and I'm telling you, shortly after that, I really felt like God was putting in my heart to do an encounter this fall, and specifically to focus on the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, boy, I'm, I'm coming with great expectation. It's like, what, what's, you know, I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm just excited to see that. And so uh, next week, like Kellyanne said, I'm going to ask the whole church to go through this study together. It's a four-day study, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Just a short study every day. And we're going to study kind of what, uh, chronologically what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit from creation through the, the, the early church. And then uh, so when we come, we'll be all prepared uh, we won't have to do a lot of teaching. We just kind of respond to what God's doing there. And so we're excited about that. I really encourage you as your pastor, you know, always, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit. If he's calling you not to come, I get that, you know. But uh, I just really want to have your listening ears on because I have the feeling this is going to be one of those nights that is impossible to duplicate, impossible to communicate. It's just like what God's going to do is what God's going to do. And if you don't come, chances are you're going to be really sorry for that. So just, just be really open to making that. Of course, if you have a Thursday night life group, you bring your whole life group, right? So we'll be here together. So anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So I think uh, Kellyanne may have mentioned it, but inside your program, if you're brand new, there's a, a green and white message note sheet. For those of you joining us online, a special welcome. But depending on the format, either at the top or the bottom, there's a link that says message notes. And you can just click on that and then three different formats there. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready? Let's go. Father, we're just excited to be here in your house, Lord. And I just often reflect as I, I enter this time uh, with prayer is just on what your word says, that when you gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus is there. And so, Lord, we come to a high, holy moment. We don't take this for granted. We know that you're here with us. Your spirit is here with us. Your angels are here with us, taking place. Lord, we thank you for their protection. And we just come, Lord, now, um, and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would be our teacher, that you would lead, that you would guide, you'd open our eyes to wonderful things in your word, that together we'd be transformed Together, we would run hard and fast after you and your word. We would be changed, and we would be the light of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for a while. It's called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome. Uh, that as uh, it's been the last couple times, uh, we've just got a lot to cover today. So we're just going to jump right in. Next week, I promise a story. But uh, for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome. And I just always like to give just a quick recap at the top so you kind of know where we're at. So, so this, uh, this series is based on a in, uh, kind of an in-depth study 
of one of the most important letters uh, ever written, uh, no exaggeration, in the history of the world. It was written from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers who live in the capital of the Roman Empire. They live in Rome. It's about a million people. Most of them he's never met. He's going to be coming on a visit. And so he's sharing with them the message that God has given him to share uh, that he introduces in the very first uh, verse, which he calls the gospel of God, this kind of epic story of uh, God rescuing a rebel race through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah. And so we call this letter, the letter to the Romans, the series is called the Gospel of God. Now, today we're gonna be breaking into a new chapter, into chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up there, there in your note sheet. You have a section that's called uh, the Gospel of God, three key questions. And so let me set it up. So if you've been with us in this series, uh, at the middle of chapter one, Paul kicks off the main body of the letter. And he begins kind of bringing his case against the human race. He, he begins almost like a prosecuting attorney setting out the evidence. And he, and he shares that, that in our story as a race, that though we are created to be in the image of God, like God, we're created to be in relationship with God. We are created to rule over creation for God. That very, very early on, we rebelled against his leadership. Uh, we rejected his leadership as our creator. And uh, we rejected, we've rejected the truth ever since then that God has revealed to us both in creation and in conscience. And this has led to kind of the lights going out on us as a race, this downward spiral we looked at in chapter one that starts with spiritual confusion about who God is, the least is sexual confusion, who we are, and finally to social chaos. And then in chapter two, Paul began to speak to those who would see themselves as a cut above the rest. Like, yes, we see why the judgment of God is on most of the uh, human race, but we're different. We're, we're kind of approaching life differently. And he's especially addressing his fellow Jews. Remember, Paul's a Jew who really saw uh, the life as that the kingdom of God is coming, and as Jews, we're gonna be part of that because God has entered into covenant with us, and we have the sign of the covenant and circumcision on our bodies, and we've been given the law of God, and we live a different way. And so, so the Gentiles, they're not gonna be part of the kingdom, but we are going to be part of the kingdom. And Paul's challenged him and said, it's not having the law that really is going to matter. It's whether you've kept the law. And when it comes to that, uh, we as Jews have been just as guilty as everyone else. And so we're all under the wrath of God, right? And so as we break into chapter three, Paul is gonna take a little bit of a time out. Uh, he's building his case as a prosecuting attorney, Gentiles, Jews, and uh, he's about to start his kind of final statement, like a summary statement that an attorney in law and order would make before the journey. But before he does that, he needs to deal with some very common objections or questions that his fellow Jews always raise whenever he shares this message of the gospel of God with them. And so he's going to do almost like a sidebar today. And that's what we're going to look at. It's in chapter 3. In verse, uh, we'll start in verse 1. You'll see that there's three bullets there. And so there's three questions that Paul wants to address to his fellow Jews before he kind of continues on and wraps up his case against the human race. And so the first question that he wants to address is what's the advantage of being a Jew? So remember, if you're a Jew in the first century, most Jews believe that because they have the law, because they have circumcision, they're going to be part of the kingdom. And Paul has just said in chapter two, that's not the case. And so their question is, well, if that's not the case, what good is it being a Jew? Like if, if the chosen people aren't gonna be part of the kingdom, 
then what good is it being a Jew? What advantage is it? And so Paul's going to address that question first. And he says, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision or the sign of the covenant? And Paul says, well, much in every way. Actually, as Jews, you have as Jews, we have a lot of advantages. What's funny is he's only going to mention one. And then in chapter nine, he'll come back to this, right? But uh, he says, much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the what? Yeah, the word of God or the very words of God in the current NIV uh, translation. And so Paul says, hey, this is a trip, like while the rest of the world, all they knew about God was what they could learn from creation and from conscience, as Jews, God has revealed himself to us in a powerful way through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the prophets and David and so on. So, so we have been given a ton more information about who God is and who we are in the path. That's a tremendous advantage. Right? And so we're going to come back to this later on. But he says, that's his first, he answers the first question. And you almost get the sense as Paul is teaching here, it's like he, he wants to get on with his argument but he realizes that for his Jewish audience reading, that for, for Jews, there, there's these things are going to be like bothering them. That he almost has to like take care of them quickly. We'll come back in chapters 9 through 11 and deal with them in depth. But just kind of quickly give some answers. So the second question that he asks is, have God's promises to Israel failed? So if you're a Jew, we're part of the chosen nation. God's given us these promises that through Abraham, his children would be blessed and that one day Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would come and God's made all these amazing promises. Now, Paul, you've just said that we have failed the covenant, that we have let God down, that we have not obeyed, that we're all under the judgment. Well, if that's true, are all these promises null and void? You know, we didn't keep our end of the bargain. Is God not going to keep his end of the bargain? And of course, uh, Paul's going to say, no, of course not. God's always going to keep his promises. And so he says in verse 3, he says, what if some were unfaithful? And by some, he means basically all. (laughs) What if some were unfaithful? Well, their unfaithfulness, like they have not kept the covenant of God. They've not not been true to God. He says... um, Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And he says, not at all. Let God be true. And in the Greek, the sense of true or faithful or loyal, uh, like true to your word, that kind of thing. Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it's written, and he quotes from Psalm 51, it's a famous psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, so that you, talking about God, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you're judged. You know, God's always going to keep, be faithful to his promise, even when we are not faithful to ours. And so the, the third question is, is God's judgment of Israel fair? And this is really interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as, as Christians, or as, uh, a, let's just put it, as a fallen human race, and we include, include us in it, but... Like, have you noticed how we can take the truth of God and screw it up? (laughs) Like, we can even take the pure truth of God and screw it up and use it in a bad way. Think of the Pharisees, for example, right? Uh, Well, here's what was happening. Wherever Paul would share the gospel of God, there were Jews that didn't buy into it, and so they would caricature what Paul's message was. 
and they would twist it. And they would say, uh, for example, well, wait a second, Paul. If you're saying we've messed up so badly, but by us messing up, it just shows how great God is and how faithful he is. I mean, shouldn't God be like happy with us? We've made him look good by being bad, right? There's gonna be a similar argument in chapter six where Paul says we're saved by faith in Christ alone, by grace. And then some will say, well, if we're saved by grace alone and like the worse we are, the greater his grace is, maybe we should just keep on sinning so that grace will increase, right? So, so these are the kinds of arguments that Paul had to deal with when he was teaching in the Roman Empire and he knows that wherever he teaches, they're gonna come up. And so he's gonna deal with that question here. He says in verse five, uh, if our unrighteousness, remember like uh, you know, the Jews have been unfaithful to their covenant, if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? He said, I'm using a human argument. In other words, this is really lame. And he says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And so one of the core truths that God revealed to Israel is that Yahweh is a judge of all the earth and he's gonna hold us accountable. That's like a basic truth. And so Paul says, this, way of, this lame way of thinking, that would, have, that would violate one of the most basic things we know about God. And so he says, certainly not. If that were so, verse eight, Verse six, how would God judge the world? He said, someone might argue if my falsehood, my disloyalty, right, my sin, enhances God's truthfulness or his faithfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say, and catch this, as some slanderously claim that we say, this is what Paul had to deal with all the time, let us do evil that good may result. And so Paul, this is the sort of thing that he had to deal with, that people would say, oh, that Paul, basically what he's teaching is just his whole message is that let's just do a lot of bad things and that makes God look good and the more bad we do, the better it is. And um, so Paul says, hey, their condemnation is just. That when anyone messes with the gospel of God and leads people astray or keeps them from following, that's a very serious thing. They're gonna have to answer for that. And so now, after Paul has kind of dealt with his sidebar of these three questions, uh, he's going to begin to wrap up, like a, like a prosecuting attorney, kind of his final statement uh, against the, uh, kind of his case against the human race. So we're not going to look at the whole thing today. I just want to look at the first thing he says, and then next week we'll, we'll finish that. But in verse 9, he says, so what shall we conclude then? So he's kind of wrapping up this presentation that Every one of us has rebelled against God. It doesn't matter if we're a wild child, a good kid, or a bad kid, or a religious kid. Like We've all rebelled, right? He's wrapping it up. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we, speaking of Jews, do we Jews have any advantage? And he says, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under, what's he say next? The power of sin. I want you to catch this. What Paul is saying is he's wrapping up is this is what this whole first section of the letter has been about is that it doesn't matter our background that we're all under the power of sin. We're all under God's judgment. We're all under God's wrath as a result of that rebellion. But I want you to catch this. When Paul says we're under the power of sin, he's saying much more than that we have simply all rebelled in our own way and committed acts of crime against our king. That's true. But what he's saying is that 
that not only are we a rebel race that commits acts of high treason, but there's something broken deep inside of us that we are unable to do anything else. That we are all under the power of sin. That there's something severely broken in the human race and no amount of self-effort, no amount of self-help, nothing can change that that core condition of our hearts that are rebel hearts. And so when we get to chapter six, he'll expand on this and he will use in chapter six and seven, he'll say that before we come to Jesus, that we are slaves of sin. That we, we cannot change ourselves. And so with that, Paul kind of wraps it up. Now next week, he's gonna come back and he's gonna back up these statements he's just made that we're all under the power of sin. Remember, he's really concerned with his Jewish listener here or the Jewish person. And he says, what he's gonna do, he's gonna go to the Hebrew scriptures and he's gonna quote seven passages that support what he's just said, that we're all under the power of sin. But that's next week, all right? For today, what I wanna do is I wanna... I want to focus in on this very first advantage that Paul focuses on. He says, and we ask the question, okay, so so what advantage is there of being a Jew? And he says, well, first of all, that we have the very words of God. And, uh, and I think for us today, there's some tremendous implications for us as followers of Jesus uh, with what he's teaching here. And so what I want to do is I want to highlight a couple principles, two principles that flow out of the passage, and then come back at the end and ask two very penetrating questions. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the gospel of God, the great advantage. All right, so the first advantage that Paul wants to highlight here, or the first principle that flows out of this passage Uh, is the obvious one that he says, that the scriptures uh, are the very words of God, right? This is what Paul says in in chapter three and verse two. I put it there on your note sheet again. And the question is, hey, well, if, if we as Jews are all under the judgment of God as well, then what advantage was there in being a Jew? And Paul says, well, first of all, uh, the Jews have been entrusted with, let's say it again, the what? Okay, they've entrusted with the very words of God. Can we say it one more time? They says we've been entrusted with the very words of God. Now I want you to stop and think about that. What Paul is saying, of course, when Paul writes this, he's referring to the Jewish scriptures, what we'd call our Old Testament, right? As followers of Jesus today, Fortunately, we have more scriptures. We have the scriptures on the life and the death, the teaching of Jesus, resurrection, right? In our gospels, we have the writings of the, the apostles and others that Jesus commissioned to, uh, to, to speak for him. And so we have even more. So, so what Paul is saying, I want you to catch this. So what Paul is saying is he's saying that when we open our Bibles, we bring our Bibles to church, we have open our Bibles. He's saying when we open our phones with our Bible on our phone or whatever, our tablet, He's saying that that what we have here, right here, is the very words of God. I want you to think about that. That's quite the claim. And of course, Christianity isn't the only one who makes that claim, right? Right? to have the very words of God. Other religions make that claim. We'll come back and talk about that later. But what I want you to catch right now is that when Paul makes this claim, this is nothing new. 
This is what the spiritual leaders of Israel, spiritual leaders of the, the Jesus, the spiritual leaders of the early, it's what everyone said. They were all on exactly the same page. It doesn't matter whether you're Moses, whether it's Joshua, whether it's David, whether it's the Psalms, whether it's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the other prophets, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, the other apostles, they're all on the exact same page. This is the claim that they're making is that, that there is a creator of the universe and that creator has revealed himself through the nation of Israel and through Jesus and the apostles and that what we have as a result is, is a combination, it's, it's truly a human document, it's like fully human because that God speaks through the different personalities and vocabularies and experiences of the, the, of the instruments, the, the people that write, but that he's also breathing through them supernaturally so that what we have is uh, in the scriptures is both 100% human and 100% divine. Just like Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. Now, this is quite the claim, but like I said, it's consistent by the spiritual leaders of Israel and in the early church and so on, Jesus, all the way through. I wouldn't have time to go into great detail, but I want to give you just three examples of the claims that's being made, all right? So there you're no sheep. The first example I want to from the life of Jesus. So what we're going to see today is Jesus was knee deep in the word. He... Um, for him, his whole life was a fulfillment of the word. Uh, he, he taught the word, he quoted the word, he used the word in spiritual warfare. Uh, he was constantly talking about the value of the word. But early on in his ministry, it appears that there were some who were questioning how Jesus felt about the scriptures because his teaching was so different from the normal religious leaders of his day. And so there's a question, does he feel the same way about the word the scriptures, as, as the rest of our nation does. It's the very words of God. And so in Matthew 5, uh, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, very early in his ministry, Jesus seems to be responding to that question. Look what he says. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets is one of the ways that you talk about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call our Old Testament. He says, don't, don't think I've come to abolish it. Some of you think I'm, I may have come to abolish my teaching's so different. But he said, I, I've, I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Okay, so he says, I've kind of, in other words, that in the same way that the final chapters of a great novel fulfill the early chapters, he said, I've come to bring this story to its appointed end. It's all leading to me. And he said, for truly I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear and the small, uh, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until all is accomplished. Right? And this is what you see constantly in his teaching. Um, you know, we, when Jesus is in his temptation, he's baptized, the spirit comes upon him to anoint him for his ministry, and he goes out in the wilderness after 40 days, right? He's, during that time, he's being tempted by the enemy. And the final great barrage, you know, his temptations, that when the enemy came, that every, with every temptation, Jesus simply quoted from Deuteronomy. 
Like for him, this settled it. Like this, no, this, no, I can't do that because this is what it says. Uh, you see him teaching the word as he would go. I remember one time when he was in Jerusalem and having a debate with the religious leaders and he quotes from one of the Psalms and he makes this comment. He says, and we all know the scripture cannot be broken. And, and in the, uh, toward the last week of his life, he says, hey, you know, uh, remember that Psalm, uh, Psalm 110? He says, remember how the Holy Spirit spoke through David? And uh, what do you think that means? And you think through his, the, 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 his arrest and so on. No, let these things be because it, the scripture has to be fulfilled. And you remember like after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples in Luke 24 and he takes them on a Bible study to show them how all these things were predicted by the prophets and the law and the Psalms. Like Jesus was knee deep in the word. And so he, for Jesus, yes, the scripture is the very words of God. Well, let's talk about the next pastors, the apostle Paul. We've already seen that Paul refers to them today as the very words of God. If you were here last week, you may remember that Paul in chapter two referred to the law uh, as the embodiment of knowledge and truth in chapter two. But at the very end of his life, the very last letter we have of him is from, uh, uh, while he's in prison, he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, uh, who's overseeing a church, he, he, uh, the church of Ephesus. And he says this, uh, Timothy had been brought up by his mother and grandmother, both Jewish, so he had been brought up on the scriptures. And he says, Timothy, from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, and catch this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through, through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. He says that the scriptures have prepared you to recognize who the Messiah was. And he said, all scripture is what? Now catch this, he says, doesn't say some scripture, right? It's all scripture is God breathed. And Paul seems to have created his own word here. He's taken two words from the Greek, the word for God and the word for breath or the word for, it's the same word for spirit or wind. And he's put them together. And he says, all scripture is God breathed. God has breathed through its uh, human authors. And he says, it's useful for four things. And I want you to remember these four things for later. He says, number one, it's useful for teaching. In other words, hey, what's the truth about God and us and life and so on? Uh, secondly, it's, it's, it's useful for rebuking. Like when we're living in rebellion against God, it's scripture will rebuke us. He says, it's useful for correcting. Like sometimes we're not rebelling. We just don't know we're making a mistake and it will correct us. And then he says, and then finally, it's, it's good for training in righteousness. So like we go to the gym, we get a trainer to train us in our physical health. Like the scriptures are to train us in our spiritual health, how to live life the right way, right? And so, so there's, there, now you see kind of Paul, a little bit more about his understanding. The last example is from the apostle Peter. This is also at the end of his life. And he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture, so he's talking about these Old Testament prophets, came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So when, the, when we're reading the scriptures, it's not like their own thoughts, their own like, well, this is what I think, or this is how I think God will feel, or something. It's not coming from their, their own things. He says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, catch us, they spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful, like a, like a leaf on the wind is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? What I want you to catch is this claim that Paul is making in Romans 3 that this event, the very words of God is consistent all the way through the, uh, the spiritual leaders uh, that we see in the Bible. Now, of course, any religion can make this claim, and many do. Like, for example, um, in Islam, for example, that they will teach that the prophet Muhammad was visited by these angels and these visions, and that, that uh, Allah dictated uh, the, the Quran, so that in the Quran you have the very words of God. Uh, if you are a Mormon, then you will believe and be taught that Joseph Smith received these golden plates with writing on them, and that uh, he was given special glasses and he could transcribe what was on the plates, and that those were, so that's why the Book of Mormon are the very words of God, right? And so, so here's the thing, any religion can claim this. And of course, if we're a thinking person, we can't just assume, just because the Bible assumes, says this, that it's true, right? Like we have to look at evidence. And today's not the day, like we don't have time to go in like, I think all the evidence that would support these claims that, we have, that we've read, it's a very word, we don't have time for all that. Um, but I do want to highlight one that for me is most important. And for me, I've documented for you how Jesus felt about the scriptures. And when someone dies and then rises from the dead, their opinion goes up in my book. Right? <laughs> right? So we've got great historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus who claimed to be the son of God, who's been sent from God, God in the flesh to teach us. And when the resurrection backs it up and he says, these are the very words of God, there you go. For me, that, like, for me that's the most important uh, uh, evidence. But I want to start there, okay? That the scripture are the very words of God. The second principle that comes out is that the scriptures chart our course to life. The scriptures are not just true in the sense that they're not, don't have air. But they're also very important because they really chart our path to life. Um, so let me, let me kind of jump in, uh, give you, just, you know, before we, we jump into the scriptures, um, one of the most common metaphors in the Bible for, um, for our relationship with God is the metaphor of a journey, right? Uh, the, the, the metaphor of a journey, of a path, of a way. So our relationship with God is often described as a walk. We're walking with God. That there's a path to life, there are paths to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, it leads to destruction, but there's a way of God that leads to life. And so over and over, and you, once I've pointed this out, you'll see this now, this is a frequent, one of the most common metaphors in the Bible to talk about our relationship with God. And so what we're going to see here, like there on your note sheet, in Psalm 119, which is uh, the longest psalm in the whole Bible, and most of it is focusing on the power of the word, the beauty of the word, the psalmist says this, he says, your word is a what? Lamp. Yeah, a lamp for my feet and a light on my so you catch that path language, the journey language? So what's he saying? He's saying that as I travel through life, it's like, 
it's like, uh, it's like traveling at, at night, you know? And I'm on this path and there's, there's dangerous ravines and I could miss and take the wrong path. He says, so he says, I, I need a light. Like, so in our day, we would say like, we need a headlamp or we need a flashlight. And he says, so, so that's what the word is given to us for. It's like, as we go through kind of this dark world to show us, here's the path that leads to life. I want to show you another Psalm that's not uh, on your note sheet, but let's go together to Psalm 1. It's the very first Psalm, and it's not the first Psalm by accident. You know, the, the editors who put together the Psalms, they're going to put this Psalm here because it's so important. So Psalm 1, we'll start at verse 1. And Kesha says, blessed is the one who does not what? Walk in step with the wicked. See the metaphor? A life is like a walk. It's like a journey. So blessed is one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the, the way that sinners takes or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And remember, in Hebrew, the word law is the word Torah, and it can be translated law, but it also can be translated instruction, the teaching. And so he says, his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, of Yahweh, and he meditates on that law day and night. He says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither, and whatever they do, what? Prosperous. This is the message that this word is not only true, it's not only the very words of God, but it's given to us to help us chart our course to life so we can prosper, so we can be the people we were created to be, so we can be transformed, so we can live the life that we're created to live. Right? If you look at the, on your note sheet there, in Psalm, uh, the next psalm that's on your note sheet is also from Psalm 119. And look what, look what the psalmist said. He says, oh, how I what? Oh, how I love your law. Now, quick sidebar here. I want to ask you a rhetorical question. And this is not a question at all to shame you, right? It's, uh, it's a question to awaken you, right? And so here's the question. Um, to what extent do you love God's Torah, his instruction? This writer of this psalm, and we'll see that more in a minute, is clearly, he's passionate about God's word. Like he, he just finds it so life-giving, right? And so he says, I, I love your commands. I love your commands. So here's what I would suggest, is that one of the ways we can put a, a spiritual thermometer into our mouth to see how healthy we are is how much love we have for God's word. So if you say, like, if it's not you, then this is not like a message of shame, like get your act together. I'm just, it's, a, it's like, hey, let's wake up here. This is one of the ways that we can discern, are we growing? It's one of the ways we discern, are we healthy? Are we becoming mature? Because the word of God is just expressing who God is, right? And if, the, if we're not loving the word, chances are we're not loving who's speaking, it's just a great, it's just a great awareness question like, huh, 
Okay, so if I don't love the word, and of course, the word comes to us in many forms, right? Like some of us are readers, we love reading the word. Some are more audible, we can listen to the word. Some of us, we love studying group in, in small groups. That's where we get the most out of the word. Some of us, hey, we're in teaching where the word is being taught or podcast. So there's different ways of taking it in. But the question is, how much passion do you have for the word? Because in general, you're your level of passion for the word is a great indicator of your passion for the one who speaks the word. So he goes on. He's really passionate. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long and your commands are always with me. They make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. I obey your precepts. You know what he's, he's saying, saying, he says, God has given me so much wisdom. God has blessed me so much in life because, because of the word and my investment in the word. One of my favorite statements in this psalm, it comes in verse 32. It's the next one on your note sheet. And uh, I, I like this in the 1984 version, the best. So I put it there, that. But I want you to catch this, this writer's passion for the word. He said, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart, what? Free. So I want to suggest something. When you first come to Jesus, one of the signs someone's been born again is a new hunger for God's word. It's like one of the best signs. It's a book that used to be closed or bore is like now speaking, right? Like the Holy Spirit's coming, he's opening our eyes, and it's like we're drawn to the word. So, so here's what often happens. We come to Jesus, we, we, we uh, have this new love for the word, but we st- and so we start walking in the path of God's word. Okay? We're walking. But there's some things that we find really freeing right away, and there's other things that feel like, that doesn't feel very freeing. That feels kind of restrictive. I don't want to do that, or I don't want to stop doing that. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to change the way I think. This feels restrictive, right? And so one of the ways, one of the marks that we're growing as a believer, that we're becoming more sure, is that our view of the word is changing. So, so for example, here's what happens. As a new believer, we're often like this. We're walking in the path of the word. Oh, freedom, freedom. Oh, that feels like a restriction. Oh. Okay, okay. Freedom, freedom. Oh, uh, restriction. It's like two steps forward, one step back, right? But as we begin to grow, what, what happens is as newer believers, we tend to see the word often at certain points not, we see it as restrictive. Like, that's restricts me. I don't like that restriction of my thought or that restriction. But here's what happens, that as we grow, the Holy Spirit begins opening up our eyes. We see that what we thought was a restriction was actually a protection. So let me give you an example. I, I don't have time to, like, Flesh this whole thing out. But when my daughters were young, we lived in this, this uh, we lived in this kind of long, kind of a flag lot. There was a long driveway. And I had a rule. They couldn't go past a certain point when they're riding their bikes. It felt very restrictive to them. But the reason was because of the shrubberies and the way it was all. Yeah, that there's something turning into our driveway from a very busy street. Couldn't see until you're already there. And I knew if they went past that point and a car happened to be driving in, they'd be killed or injured. And of course, as they grew, 
They, they really resented that restriction when they're young. But as they grew, they grew older, they began to see, oh, that was so smart. Thanks, Dad. And doesn't that happen in our life? Is that when we're younger believers, like, well, that feels so restrictive. But as, as time goes on, we see God's wisdom and his love, like a father's heart of love protecting us. I'm like, wow, that wasn't restrictive. That was protective. And so what happens is if, if, we keep, if we keep growing with Jesus, what happens is pretty soon we're not two steps forward, one step back. Pretty soon we're just kind of walking in the way of the word. But what happens, the more we walk in the way of the word, the more freedom we have. And what happens is like, ah, I just want to jog. I just want to jog. I'm just hungry for the, I just want to jog. And the psalmist has come to the place in his life where he says, jogging's not good enough for me. He says, I run in the path of your commands. Because the faster I get in, the further I move and the faster I get in the way of the word, the more freedom my life gives me. And so he, what he's saying is what Jesus would say later. He said to those who had become his disciples, he'd say, hey, if you hold on to my word, you stick with my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so these two basic principles that, that flow out, that first of all, that the, the, the scriptures are the very words of God, and then secondly, that they're given to us, not just to, for knowledge about something, they're given to chart the course to life that would lead to, uh, so our life would uh, prosper, all right? So this leads to two very important questions. Now, before you ask these questions, um, I need to get your attention, because these questions have the potential of changing your life. If you're a regular here at Rocky Peak, you know that usually when I teach, often the other guys as well, but when I teach, that usually I'll end up with a couple questions, one or two questions. And the reason is I want to take what we've learned and apply it to our lives. How does that fit to our life, right? And so it's easy if you're a regular here to go, okay, here comes that part of the message. I'm used to that. Kind of be on autopilot. But what we don't realize often is it's these questions and how we respond to these questions that's gonna determine our growth. And so, so I wanna remind you what we're doing here, that we're the people of God in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is here, the angels of God are here. This is a high and holy moment. And how you answer these next two questions to a large degree will determine your spiritual future. And so I just wanna put neon lights around that, have a sit up in the chair, and I would encourage you, just say Holy Spirit. Is there anything you want to say to me today that I need to hear and respond to, all right? So here are the two questions. There's in the note sheet, the gospel of God, two key questions. Number one, what is the word to you? What is the word to you? We've seen today what the word wants to Moses. What it, we'll see later what it is to Joshua. We've talked about what it is to the psalmists and the prophets. And we've talked about what it was to Jesus and to the apostle Paul and to apostle Peter and so on. But the question is, what is the word to you? For them, it was the very words of God, but what are the scriptures to you? And I think this is one of the most important, one of those critical questions in our spiritual journey at any time in human history. But I think it's especially important right now because we live in the midst of a culture that's sort of losing our mind. And many of the truths that we've assumed, that culture has assumed to be true, are being questioned, being challenged. 
And in particular, many of the truths that the word of God teaches about who God is, who we are in the path to life, are, are being challenged, and not just challenged, but they're often, our culture is becoming very hostile to these claims. And in a culture like that, there's a tremendous temptation to compromise our view of the very words of God and to change it. And this is not just true in culture in general. This is happening within Christian circles where men and women are rising up who were once Orthodox believers, once believed that the Bible was the very words of God, and they're starting to shift their, their opinion or shift their teaching. And so they would say, yeah, I once believed that the Bible was the very words of God. I no longer believe that. We often call this movement, like, it's kind of part of a, this is one part of like a progressive Christianity. But, it, but what they would say is that now we understand better that what the Bible really is, sure there's some spiritual truth in there, but what the Bible really is, is sort of like a spiritual journal of God's people through the ages. And they got some things right, they got some things wrong, but now that we're older, more mature, as a human race, that we need to discern what's right and what's wrong. And, and there's many things that we once believed to be true that now we know are not true. And if you were to ask them, well, what are those things? They would just coincidentally be the exact things that are being taught by the progressives in our culture. Like, wow, that's really crazy. We had over 2,000 years for culture finally to lead the way, right? And so, this is a very important question for us, is what is the word for you? And I think one of the biggest problems in our spiritual life, honestly, is that we say we believe this is the word of God, but in real life, we don't really. All of us, you, me, I mean, we're all in this together, right? We, we say we believe, but we, so, so the question is, well, how do I know what the word of God is to me? And I'll tell you, there's kind of two tests that I think are very helpful. One test goes like this. When culture says one thing and the word says another, who wins the battle for your mind? Right? Like so, so when the Bible says, this is the worldview, this is who God is, this is who we are, this is about the life, and the culture says, no, that's not the worldview, this is the worldview, um, who, who wins that? When culture says, uh, hey, this is a path of, to freedom. This is a path to life. This is the way we should think about our sexuality. This is the way we should think about uh, human beings. This is the way, and the Bible says something very different. Like who wins that battle in your mind? If you can answer that question, then you're well on your way to answering, well, what is the Bible to you? I think a second question to ask is, what do you do when the Bible asks you to do something or not do something, to think something or not think something, that if you were to obey it is very costly? Maybe there's a forgiveness issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. How you, maybe it's how you approach relationships. Maybe it's how you approach your marriage. Maybe it's how you approach raising your children. Maybe it's how you approach your sexuality. Maybe it's how you approach uh, kind of your, your understanding of human nature. But whatever it is, that there, there's something that the, 
that the Holy Spirit's calling you to a step of obedience and it would be very painful, very costly. In those situations, do you trust that, yeah, this is very costly, but I believe it's the very words of God and it comes from a father who loves me and that it will lead to freedom? Or do you back off and say, I know that's what it says, but I don't think that's what it means. So what is the word of God to you? Here's the second question. Is it, are you taking advantage of the great advantage? So Paul says that, you know, what's the, what advantage does the Jews? Well, you know, that the first advantage, is great advantage, is that they have the very words of God. And of course, as we've talked earlier, we have even more of that today, right? And what we've learned today is these, these words are given to have us chart our course in life, to live a life that, we, that prospers, of freedom, of fulfillment, right? That's why the word is given to us. But the question is, okay, so we have this great advantage, but what are we doing with the great advantage? You know, one of my favorite passages on the word is in Joshua chapter one. It's there on your note sheet. Um, the situation is that Joshua has just taken over the reins of leadership from Moses. Moses has died. Joshua, his first job is to do the one thing Moses couldn't do, lead him into the promised land. It's a huge job, huge obstacles. Uh, he's not sure he's up for the task. And so God comes to him in Joshua chapter one and he, he tells me he's with him, don't be afraid, I'll be, you know, you're gonna have success and so on. But then in the midst of that, he says something very important about the word. He says, Joshua, you need to keep this book of the law. Now remember all that they had at this time would be the, the books of Moses, the first five at most, right? He says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Now you may not know this, but in ancient times, no one read silently to themselves. They always read out loud. And so when he says, keep this book of the law on your lips, he's, he's saying, be constantly reading it. He says, and then don't just read it, meditate it on it day and night. So to meditate just means to think about something, right? That you read the word and just begin to ponder that and think about that. What are the implications? And Lord, what does that mean? And like, like you think about it and like take it in, like how does that apply to my life? Or what, what does that say about who God is, who I am, the path of life? And he says, and the reason you meditate on it is so that you may be careful to do most of the things written in it. Okay, good job, good job. All right. Yeah, that you may be careful to do what? Everything. Everything. He says, hey, hey, you need to be reading this constantly. You need to be reflecting on what it means. And the reason is, is so you can, you can know what it says and you can do everything it says. And he says, and the reason for this is then you'll be What? Yeah, so God wants to bless us, right? So what I want you to catch is, so, so God is telling Joshua, here is your path to success. But he says, it's not gonna be automatic. Like I'm giving you what you need to succeed, but, but now it's on you. Like you, you've gotta read it. You've gotta learn it. You've gotta ponder it. You gotta think about it. And most importantly, you need to do it. And if you do that, you're going to be successful. If I had to summarize that teaching, I'd, I'd say four steps. And they just kind of jot these down real quick. Is 
is read it often. You know, first step, read it. Hey, read the word often. Uh, how can you learn it if you don't read it? Uh, or listen to it, or however you take it in. Uh, number two, reflect. When you reflect on it. It's not just uh, a verse a day keeps the devil away. You know, it's like we, like we need to like think God's thoughts after him. We need, like read it and understand it. Uh, number three, we need to make it a priority. Did you notice how do this every day, meditate on it day and night, uh, do this every, you know, like the constant sense of making a priority. And the fourth thing is to obey it. Once you understand it and obey it and don't pick and choose. <laughs> don't pick and choose like everything that is written. So, so here's the question I have for you is to what extent are you taking advantage of this great advantage? And again, I, I feel like I need to say this often because I know we have, we have, um, we often have new people, but also because we're just as human beings, we're so prone to shame and uh, like we're, we're kind of used to someone doing that. And it's like, that as I, as I shepherd you, like a flock, right, as I shepherd you, my goal is never to shame you. Um, my goal is to hopefully bring truth that, uh, enlightens and sets free. Right? And so, so when I'm asking these questions, the, the point is never to say shame on you. You call yourself a Christian, you hardly ever read the Bible, and what kind of a Christian are you? It's, there's none of that. The reason I'm asking these questions is to say, hey, men and women, that God has given us an incredible gift, and he's given it to us so we can be like a tree planted by, living, by rivers of living water. He's given it so we can be wiser than our enemies. He's given to us so we're smarter than our elders. You know, I think, what, I think what Jesus said in John chapter six, think of four statements from, from John. John chapter six, he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they're spirit and life. And they, the words I speak, they can infuse life. And then I think what he said in John 8, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And I think of John 15 where he says, you know, my, I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the gardener. He prunes every one of you so that you can bear more fruit. And how he does it is with the word. I think of John 17 when he's praying, Father, sanctify these disciples. I'm leaving. You have to take care of them. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them the people they're supposed to be. He said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so if we're going to grow, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to build healthy relationships, if we're going to have a financial house that's in order, if we're going to grow and develop the people that we're created to be, to love well, if we're going to be the light of the world, it all comes back to the word. And so, so to what extent are you taking advantage of this great advantage? Let me ask it another way. Do you schedule the word 
around your life? Or do you schedule your life around the word? For many of us, the truth is, we schedule our life, and then if there's any time left over, we will insert the word. Five minutes here before I go to sleep, three minutes there. And what we're being told in the scriptures, no, we need to schedule our lives around the word. We start with the word. We read it carefully. We meditate on it. We make it a priority, and then we do what it says. And so that's where we begin scheduling and planning our lives. We don't schedule the word around our lives. We schedule our lives around the word. And then the word can set us free. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we come to you as your church. And, Lord, we just admit that many times we get derailed, distracted. I think of what you said, Lord, that, that the message you brought was like the word of the kingdom, that you sow it in different kinds of soil. And I, I remember what you said about the third kind of soil. You said that... It springs up quickly, but then it's choked out by the weeds. And then when you explained it to your disciples, you said that that's by the, the, the worries of this life, the distractions of this life, the love of wealth and other things, it chokes out the word. And Lord, we don't want to be those people. We want to build our lives around your word. And so, Lord, as we come before you in this final song, we pray you'd meet us and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just let me give you sort of a hot tip is that if you, if you feel like, hey, you don't have a hunger for the word, I guess the question I would ask is, well, do you have a hunger for God himself? Because usually those things go together. And many times the reason the word is not speaking to us is because we haven't really surrendered our life completely to Jesus. And so we're, we're worshiping other gods, we're pursuing other idols, and so, yeah, the word doesn't make sense, it doesn't refresh us, because the spirit's not working, because we're, we're grieving the spirit. And so a place to begin is just, is to start with that relate. Lord, is there anything in my life that's become my idol? Is there anything that I'm not surrendered to you? Would you show me? And then as you do that, as you respond to that, then you can pray the second part. Lord, now would you give me a passion for your word? And I believe the Lord will respond to that. He'll begin to teach you how and what works for you and all those other things, the how-to questions, but that starts at the heart. And so, Lord, we pray that you would stir in us a new passion for your word. And like this song says, that we would be people who hang on every word that you've spoken. We pray this in your name. Amen.